1959 in the mountains in Mother Russia. A hiking group, professionals, experienced, basically disappear. And when they're found, their bodies are mangled and mutilated under unexplained circumstances. And even to this day, no one's really come up with a conclusive answer to what happened to them. It's the mystery of Dyatlov Pass. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So sometime between February 1st and the 2nd, 1959, nine Russian hikers die in the northern Ural Mountains. Now these were experienced skiers. A group was formed for a skiing expedition and led by Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at Ural Polytechnical Institute. He was the designated leader and he assembled a group of nine people for this trip. Most were his fellow students and peers at the university. Each member at the time they, they went into the mountains which was eight men and two women, they were experienced grade two hikers with ski tour experience. Completing this trip was going to earn them their grade three certification, which was the highest hiking certification you could earn in, in Russia at the time. I thought it was only the one guy that was trying to earn his master. The rest of them were experienced. I have that they were all going to earn it. The one guy was going to earn his master. That was why he was going. He was. This okay. was to become like a master trainer. I, guess I or missed that. I knew they were experienced, but I thought it was just that one dude was getting his. Uh... Now, there's a lot of Russian names here. <laughs> and and we're going to butcher we, these. We will indeed butcher these names. But uh, so the the expedition as they set out for the mountains included Igor Dyatlov, 23, mm-hmm. Yuri Doroshenko, 21. Lyudmila Dubinina, 20. Uh, Yuri Krivonashenko, 23. Alexander Kolovatov, 24. Zaneda Kolmogorova, 22. Rustam Slobodin, which you said I was pronouncing that one wrong. Slobberton, I believe, is actually the way you pronounce it. Well, that's not the way it's written. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll roll with it. 23. Um, this one's probably the most difficult to pronounce, and it's not even Russian, I think. Nikolai Thibault Brunel, maybe? Something along those lines. And a Yuri Yudin. But uh, yeah, they were, all cert- they were all slated to receive a grade three certification when they returned. Uh, not, not exactly sure what that means. I, I wasn't either. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a rank I would almost expect, um, you know, I, I think of like the Boy Scouts or, or military, like you know, where you get the different ranks. But to talk a little bit more about the group, a very well diversified, very well educated group. You know, Alexander Kolovtov, you mentioned he was 24. He was a student of nuclear physics. Uh, he worked for the secret Soviet service at one point and helped supervise Soviet nuclear industry. Ooh. Um, Yuri, and again, we're going to butcher these names, so bear with us, but Yuri Vonashenko, the 23-year-old, he was considered the joker 
of the group, uh, and he played a mandolin, and he had it with this expedition and always took it, and he was the prankster of the group. Uh, Ludmine Leveau was the 20-year-old. She was a dedicated communist in studying economics. She'd actually been shot on a previous hunting expedition by an accidental gun charge when a guy was cha- uh, cleaning his gun. We have like civil construction on some of these people. Uh, Nikolai de Prevlio was a son of a French communist. He was actually born in a concentration camp, uh, and he was kind of the caretaker, the fatherly figure, if you will. He, he aided all the group. One of the guys, uh, Sloberton, that we talked about, or Sloberton, he was a graduate with mechanical engineering. I mean, these were very educated, um, book smart, um, a group of people. Well, again, like I said, they were experienced hikers. They were going to earn their grade three certification, which required them to traverse 190 miles uh, cross-country skiing, I guess, is, is, is what they were doing. So this route that they were taking was designed to get them that certification. That was what they were doing. It was to go and, and do that. Uh, it was designed uh, to reach the far northern regions of Svredlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. Which is in the same mountain range, I believe, as the Siberian border. I mean, to kind of put it in perspective, very, very cold, cold area. Yeah. The goal was to eventually reach Otorten, uh, a mountain about 6.2 miles north of where they were at when the incident occurred. The route itself was estimated to be a Category 3, which made it the most difficult to traverse. They were going through some rather treacherous terrain. And again, February, you were talking about right up there on the border of Siberia, mm-hmm. ice and snow and, and, and just... I believe the be temperatures were cold. You know, like negative 25. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the, the mountain altitudes and the wind. And Before they actually set out on their hike, they did add another member to their party, Semyon Zolotaryov, 38. Simeon was originally supposed to go out on a similar expedition with another group, which, for one reason or another, never went out. The Simeon sort of joined up with their party. And you did mention the the starting with 10 members. Uh, Yuri Yudin was a 21-year-old economic student. He suffered from rheumatism, uh, arthritis. Uh, and a congenital heart defect. And ironically, and he, he started, he made yeah. it to the cabin. He, he eventually dropped out due to uh, and that several illness, reasons. That, those illnesses literally probably saved yeah. his life. Uh, he was the only survivor, and, if and, you will. And again, it's my understanding that he lived with survivor's guilt. I mean, obviously, with what eventually happens to right. the group. Uh, early morning, January 25th, 1959, they arrived by train at Ivdel, which is a town at the center of the province of Sverdlovsk Oblast. Uh, then they take a truck to the village of Vizhai, which is the last inhabited settlement to the north for them. And they spent the night there and prepped for the next day's hike. And it's my understanding they, they basically carbo-loaded that night, drank a lot of, or drank a lot, ate a lot of bread, you know, kind of just got ready for the next hike, a lot of high-energy foods. They began their trek on the 27th toward Gora or Otorten. And on the 28th, like we said, Yuri Yudin decided to turn back due to knee and joint pain from, again, rheumatoid arthritis. And he had several elements. He probably shouldn't have been going out on such a yeah, treacherous hike. Yeah, it didn't sound like he, he should have been there, you know. Uh, and I saw some pictures taken of that. That um, I mean, it was like a log cabin. It was a very well-established. Yeah. It wasn't like a tent, you know, kind of deal. It was a well-established place. Now, diaries and cameras found from their final campsite do allow for their their path, their trail, the the expedition. At least a few snapshots. They of the they path can pretty the well track pretty well track where the the group went. And the group was keeping a diary kind of together, yeah. and some of those notes were found. 
So on January 31st, they arrive at the edge of the Highland area and they begin to prepare for climbing. So they take some of their surplus food, some of their surplus equipment. They go down into this wooded valley and they stash it for the return trip. So they don't have to take it with them. They pick it up on their way back. Right. Build it up kind of on some stilts based on the pictures I saw, you know, no. probably keep the bears and, yeah. and stuff from, from getting to it. So they make camp for the night there on, uh, what eventually becomes known as Dyatlov Pass. Uh, now due to snowstorms and decreasing visibility, they do, uh, lose their direction as they're returning from that valley. Uh, they deviate a little to the west more than they had expected, and they're sort of aiming for the top of Colette Cycle. Now, uh, Colette Cycle, and I'm sure I'm saying that one wrong, but uh, in the native tongue of the region actually means Dead Mountain. Yes. Now, that sounds imposing, but when they use the phrase Dead Mountain, they mean because it is devoid of life, not because people go there to die, to die. or whatever. Yes. But it's just really poor hunting area, and there's not a lot of... Not a lot of animal to kill, not a lot of game. So and, it's And that just, was given, I believe, by the the Mansi tribe. Yeah, the Mansi kind of the local people. tribe, the people that was there. So uh when they realize their mistake and they've deviated towards the top of this mountain, they uh they just go ahead and they establish camp there. The theory, of course, that they didn't want to lose any of the ground they had gained, they were already gonna go up the mountain as it were, so it may not have been the safest place to camp, but they were already kinda of headed in the right direction. So they went ahead and set up camp for the night. So during the night, that's that's when things go wrong for this, for this horribly, group. horribly wrong. Something causes them to cut their way out of their tents and to flee the campsite while woefully unprepared for the weather they're going to encounter. Uh, they're they're underdressed for the the heavy snowfall and the sub-zero temperatures, and and something happens that night. Now I will say here, I did find um, one of the diary uh, journals during this time frame. And I'll quote right out of the out of the journal. It says, "Wind is not strong. Snowfall is 1.22 meters. Tired and exhausted, we started preparations for the night. Not enough firewood. Frail, damp furs. We started fires with firewood logs. Too tired to dig a fire pit. We had to suffer right in the tent. It is warm. Kind of a contradictory there. I'm not sure, but again, I'm <laughs> quoting out of the diary." Hard to imagine such a comfort somewhere on the ridge with piercing winds 100 of kilos away from any settlement. So, yeah. I mean, they were already starting to feel we are out uh, away well, from and, anybody. And again, yeah, I mean, they're way out there. Before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed to send a telegram to their sport club as soon as they returned to that village of Vizai, uh, which he had estimated to be February 12th. Now, when Yuri Yudin separated from the group, Dyatlov told him, he's like, we're probably not going to be back by the 12th. Yeah, we're we, already we, seeing we're some problems. Or, yeah, which seemed to also be very typical to past expeditions yeah. there. I noticed uh, there were several people that, you know, it, it should take this amount. But you're at the mercy of the yeah. weather. And, you know, God forbid somebody gets injured or sick, it's going to slow you down multiple days. So, very common. So, so when no one had heard word from Dyatlov by the 20th, uh, the relatives began to demand that action be taken. Obviously, they're concerned about their family. Uh, the head of the t the institute, he sent out the first groups, which consisted of volunteer teachers and students looking for the survivors. And then later, the military got involved using planes and helicopters. Now, the Mansi tribe, I believe, also had some yeah. members in that initial, at least, uh, search. Well, they were more familiar with the area, obviously. It was sort of their home turf. So On February 26th, the group's abandoned final final camp was found on the Colette Sayakil. Sayakil? Again, I'm, I'm sure I'm messing that name up. <laughs> on, on Dead Mountain. 
uh, and their damaged tent was found uh, with a, what I believe, a flashlight. They said torch. I don't think they meant like a, a burning torch, so I'm going to say right, a flashlight right. and I on top it, of it. You mentioned that the tents were ripped and cut. I found reference that, I'm not sure how you would tell this, but they felt they were cut from, cut from the, the inside. inside. Yeah, the way escape. they were cut, it, w- it seems as if they were cut from the inside. So it wasn't like somebody attacked from the outside slicing the tent. It was like they yeah. were inside trying yeah, the, to escape. The tents from were found covered in snow, and then it was obvious that they had been cut from the inside, so like like they were trying to escape. Now, the, they said the tents contained a lot of their belongings, including money, uh, supplies, and even footwear and, yeah, and boots. some clothing and, and some cold weather gear. I mean, they had it there with them. Um, they found barefoot prints leaving yeah. the, the tent area. They, well, nine set, nine set of footprints were found leaving the tent. Uh, they were left by people wearing only socks, maybe a single shoe in some cases, or even barefoot. Yep. And they led down to the edge of the nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, which I believe is where they had their gear stored. After about 1,600 feet, the tracks became untraceable and they became covered in snow. So, uh, sometime later, under a large Siberian pine, searchers found the remains of a small fire mm-hmm. and discovered the first two bodies, which was Krivonashenko and Doroshenko. They were both shoeless, wearing only their underwear. Uh, there were branches broken up in the tree at a height of about 15 feet. And so, the going theory is that they climbed the tree trying to find something. I mean, where they, they, they think they were looking for the camp, possibly. And again, that goes trying back to get a higher. Yeah, that side goes back to the light they left on the tent. Maybe they had left it back there as some sort of beacon that they could follow to make their way back in, in case something happened. However, um, you mentioned the, the flashlight. Now there may have been more than one flashlight, but in the research I did, uh, Igor, the leader, his jacket was found hanging outside the tent with a usable flashlight that still had charging batteries. Yeah, there, there's a lot of weird little details to this. Now, between the pine and the camp, the searchers were able to find three more of the bodies, which included Dyatlov, Kolmogorova, and Slobodin, or... Slobberton, however yeah, you want to pronounce it. it. And they all were found dead, and Posey suggested that they were returning to the tent. Now, unfortunately, it took more than two months to find the remaining bodies, uh, and they were found on May 4th, under about 13 feet of snow, in a ravine 246 feet further into the woods from the pine tree. They were better dressed than the others. There were signs that they had taken clothing from those who had died before them. Mm-hmm. Dubnina was found wearing Krivnashenko's burned and torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket that belonged to someone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously something has happened. They've all died under these mysterious circumstances. Again, um, sometimes with a single sock on, yeah. a single shoe or boot, wearing others' clothing. So that was that would kind of you know reminisce you that Something obviously frightened them, startled them. They left in a hurry. Now, we did talk in the Missing 411 episode about, uh, you know, people who suffer from hypothermia do tend to strip out of their clothing sometimes. Yes. I believe they call it paradoxical stripping, but they feel like they're they're burning up. They're overwhelmed with heat when it's when just really actually freezing. Yeah, it's really the nerves just misfiring and not understanding the input. And so that that might explain why they were found in various states of undress. Yeah. Uh, I want to reflect back again. I want to stress these aren't typical teenagers that would just go out to do hiking. No, definitely not. Um, One of the first bodies that you mentioned that was found, uh, the Yuri Doroshenko, he was 21 years old. He had a background in radio engineering. One of the things I came across here, maybe a little less known, 
he had chased a full-grown bear off <laughs> with a like ice pick or hammer to defend the group on a previous expedition. I mean, these guys were tough. They were experienced. Igor uh, Dyatlov, the leader of the group, he had even developed some of his own equipment, including like a cook stove for the day that was specially designed for cooking and all this. I mean, he was found, like as you said, like with one sock on, but his hands and his arms were clenched in his chest, almost like in a defensive pose. And I mean, he was literally frozen solid that way. Yeah. Very, very strange. Very, very strange. Yeah, these are experienced hikers. And then on top, the original camp where they'd found those bodies later, a few weeks later during some of the other hunts and trying to find the other bodies, it was noted that some of the treetops were burned and singed. I didn't find that detail. Um, It wasn't originally discovered, but like I said, a couple weeks later, and it was kind of blown off. Possibly as a cover-up, because one of the well, guys that get found into some it, potential theories for that later on. Yeah, yeah, definitely lends itself so, for that. Okay, so obviously there's an official investigation that's mm-hmm. launched into this, and and the official determination is that six of the hikers had died from hypothermia, the other three had been killed by physical trauma. Of those three, one victim had major skull damage, two had severe chest trauma. And when examined by a medical examiner, he described the damage as being like that of a car crash victim. Right. They had suffered a, like severe crushing damage, external damage, and yet very little external damage. A lot of broken yeah. ribs and stuff on a couple yeah. of the members, both sides. But, but again, no external wounds to account for the internal wounds. And then one of them had a small crack in the skull. Four bodies were found lying in running water in a creek. Of those... Three were missing soft tissue, had soft tissue damage to the head and face. Two were missing their eyes. One was missing a tongue. One was missing its eyebrows, which seemed weird. Now, the one missing the the tongue, ironically, during the autopsy, they found blood in the stomach, which means the tongue was removed while they were alive and they were swallowing the blood to add to the creepiness. Yeah, it's just, it's so many weird details. So, the official inquiry... As released by Russian officials, it states that six died of hypothermia, three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people on Kolat Siakol, apart from the travelers. The tent had been ripped apart from within. The victims had all died six to eight hours after their last meal. Mm -hmm. At about 11.30 to 1.30 a.m. time frame. Traces from the camp show they had left of their own accord and on foot. Some levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothing. Mm-hmm. So you get another one of those little weird details. Fatal injuries could not have been caused by human beings. I thought I, that was interesting. Yeah, so I mean, they, they made a point were, to note that. Yeah, they made a point to note that, yeah, that didn't look like these were attacked by another human. The damage no. was just too extreme. The documents include no info about the condition of the internal organs, which again seems like a strange observation. And then there were no survivors. So the the con- final conclusion was a compelling natural force had caused the deaths of these hikers. Now later on, I I briefly mentioned there was a little bit a possible cover up. Uh, you know those words often go with with some of this type of stuff. The Russian military, you have to keep in mind, this was during the time of the Sputnik and the Great Space Race, and <laughs> there was a lot of things going on and. Uh, some of these individuals and some of the ones that went on the search and rescue were military. They did later prove 
that some of the people that was uh, during the investigation and was told do not include this detail or that detail in the report because they were doing some testing, had done some testing well, in the area. And based on, obviously, my very American understanding of how things work, I mean, Russia in those days, you you you, you said what you were allowed to say, basically. Yeah. Or you ended up in Siberia. So. But uh, to touch base a little bit more, some of the autopsy reports, there was a few other details that later came out with a little bit more information. As you had mentioned, several of them had like soft tissue and stuff. Yuri Doroshenko, it was noted that the hair on his right side was burned. He was noted with blood on and in his ears, nose, and lips. He had 10 or more bruises and wounds around the armpit, shoulder, arms, legs, and his right cheek was covered with a gray foam that had come from his mouth indicating force or pressure of great amount was applied to his chest. Uh, That's one example. Yuri uh, Vonashenko had several bruises, abrasions on his head, um, but as well as the backside of his right hand appeared to have been chewed off. And it was stated chewed off. I thought that was interesting. A number of them had weird bruises and or missing flesh on the backside of their knuckles and hands. And I think a lot of the, I think the official explanation for a lot of that was scavenging animals. And, and again, so, very possible. A couple of related reports at the time. Uh, 12-year-old Yuri Kunsevich, he attended five of the funerals for the hikers because I guess he had known them or, or was somehow involved with them. And he later recalled the detail that they their skins all had a deep brown tan. I remember you saying that. So. I hadn't come across that, but that definitely lends itself to some of the theories. There, there was also another group of hikers about 31 miles south of where the Dyatlov Pass incident happened. And they reported they saw strange orange spheres in the sky on the night in question. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to say here, at the time, this location was obviously not known as Dyatlov Pass. It was named after Igor Dyatlov. After, After the, the fact, incident. this became yeah. the Dyatlov Pass incident. So, uh, Russia reopened the investigation in 2019 and finally released its final conclusion in 2020. So their final conclusion is as follows. Death had been caused by an avalanche. The survivors had been forced to suddenly leave their camp in low visibility with inadequate clothing resulting in hypothermia. Uh, and reported by Andrei... Kuryakov, deputy head of the regional prosecutor's office, he stated, and I'll quote, It was a heroic struggle. There was no panic, but they had no chance to save themselves under the circumstances. A study published in 2021 suggested that a slab avalanche would explain some of the injuries. Looking into it a little bit so I could explain what a slab avalanche is, uh, they say it basically looks like the snow is just cut out in a certain pattern and it just slides straight down. It's not that tumbling avalanche that you kind of see. It would almost be like a, a boulder falling of, yeah. of ice. Just like or a, snow. just a big chunk, just a chunk of, of snow sliding down. Here comes down a semi truck just sliding down the mountain at you. So avalanche sounds good, right? No, but not so I've good. I've got no. a problem with There's that. There's some contradictions to that. <laughs> so, um, and and you can tell me what you found, but here's here's the things I found immediately. The location. Didn't have any immediate evidence that an avalanche had occurred. Nor had it in any past. Yes. Over 100 expeditions have have traveled that area since then and have never encountered an avalanche, nor avalanche conditions. 
Analysis of the terrain shows that had an avalanche occurred in that particular area, it would have bypassed where they were camped, where their tent was found. Uh, Dyatlov was an experienced skier. Zolotaryov was studying for a master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Correct. Very experienced, wild, you know, wild wilderness traveling people. Both were deemed too experienced to likely camp in an avalanche zone. They would recognize the hazard. It would be common sense, yes, for them. And the footprints they found were inconsistent with people fleeing in panic from an avalanche. It was consistent with individuals walking at a normal pace. And and let me ask this question. We both mentioned footprints. Had there been an avalanche, one would have thought footprints would have been covered. Yeah. Also, we mentioned that Igor's coat was still hanging outside the tent, as well as I believe there was a picture. I know it was noted that a pair of skis were stuck in a small snowdrift, still standing well, the, the up. The tent itself in the pictures is not buried like buried, you would expect on an if, avalanche. Yeah, either way, whether it be a slab avalanche or, or snow, even, well, it would have buried it. It would have tumbled it. it even the bodies it. were not covered with an unreasonable amount of snow. They were I'm, covered with like a snowfall amount of snow. I'm calling BS on the avalanche theory. So the avalanche theory kind of doesn't hold up yeah so if it's not an avalanche what, what else could it? it be well here's some possible theories and i think we can touch on base on a few of these one of the first ones i found was a catabatic wind which i'd never heard that but they call them a windfall and what that is is a heavy moisture laden air carried downward by gravity it's almost a, like, a physical force almost in itself like like a waterfall they kind of compare it to a little hmm. bit they're rare but they can be extremely violent and it would have been impossible to remain in the tent under those circumstances because it would have basically tried to collapse the tent on them. So had they stayed in the tent, they likely would have suffocated. They would have had to have left. Now they cut themselves out from the inside. That much is obvious. That part I felt was strange. Why would, why would you cut yourself out when there obviously was a door to get in and out? Yeah. That, that, that's another thing. That like, was, why that did they have little, themselves up? That was a little strange. So, catabatic wind is an interesting one. Okay. Uh, infrasound was another theory I that had, I found. I had that one down. Uh, and it's believed that wind going around the mountain can cause infrasound. Yes. Infrasound is capable of inducing panic attacks in human beings. Nausea, all type of weird side effects. And yes. then further down the mountain, they would have gotten out of the path of the infrasound. They would have been out of the influence, and they would have sort of recovered and realized what they had done. And then that might explain climbing the tree to find the camp. Since they now realize that they've left the camp for no apparent reason. Totally disoriented. And again, fleeing in a panic. Maybe they cut their way out of the tent. I will add to that, adding more merit, I believe, to that. uh, There was a five-year research program done for that infrasound strange weather phenomenon. And they tested it at Dyatlov Pass and did recreate it on several occasions. I mean, it's possible that it's happened. Possibility. Military testing. Oh, yes. That's a good one. And we've, we've even kind of touched on it a little bit already. Uh, speculation says that their site was within path of, uh, what's called Soviet parachute mine exercises. Parachute mine. Again, I had to like, what, what's a parachute? <laughs> what? Mine? But apparently it was, it was a weapon. It was, it's a mine. It's, it's literally a mine dropped via parachute and it detonates above ground. So it doesn't ever make contact with the ground. It detonates at a certain height in the air. So, you know, hey, maybe they heard these loud explosions. They they fled the tent. That would explain flashes of light seen by other people in the region at the time. And that was noted that other people had saw, as you said, weird orbs, yeah. lights. And, and it could explain know, the damage the to the trees. It could explain the burn marks. Yeah. It could explain the damage to the bodies. 
because they would have been hit with explosive force. And I guess it could lend itself to the avalanche theory if they exploded something above. But again, the tents were there. The skis were upright. Yeah, there's, I don't there's think, things that don't make don't a lot of sense. I think that was that. Uh, possibly radiological weapons due to the slight amount of radiation detected on some of the clothing and due to the appearance of the skin. But again, if the Russians were testing nuclear weapons at the time, they weren't going to say anything. Now, I will say, as I'd mentioned, some of that was kind of an early cover-up. Some of the things that came out later, and it's still kind of sketchy, but one of the men came forward, and part of the items of clothing that were found on the bodies were not theirs, and not only like that individual's, but no one in the group's. Um, I never found that. There was actually some military-issued socks that were found, as well as a piece of torn parachute-like material that had military markings on it that they had, I would assume, maybe used to try to, you know, wrap themselves for It was clearly deposited there by the avalanche. Exactly, (laughs) for sure. Finally, the most fitting for our little podcast, I feel, you have the Yeti attack theory. Yeah, we've talked about this on uh, one of the other episodes. Uh, there's a photo taken by the group when uh, when their photos were developed. Like I said they they had they found diaries and cameras on them. There's a photo of the group that shows a human like figure a in humanoid. the trees. Now, now you say in the trees, not up in the trees. Yeah, like but in amongst the trees. Yeah, in amongst the trees. Yes. Now they uh, the theory is it could have been one of the hikers. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was one of the Mansi people from the region. Or the Yeti. Maybe it was a military person. Could be. Maybe it was a Yeti. Uh, the figure is dark in comparison to the, the white background of the snow. So, And again, you got to consider this film was buried. It, it did have yeah. some water damage, so it wasn't and pristine. Yeah, and again, the quality of the picture is not great. But I got to say, the the pose of the person, it, individual, it humanoid, it, it did not look like, hey, I'm one of your friends from the ski hike. And uh, local legend of the Mansi people does relate that there's a a wild man of the mountain in that region. Did he Yeti attack the Dyatlov Pass uh, expedition? Pro- probably not, but <laughs> now, there is some evidence to support it. I, I got to add a little bit more here. They, um, the, the group was traveling together. Obviously, it was a teamwork expedition. You don't do this kind of thing solo. Yeah. So everybody kind of knew, and you were very strategically knew what you had packed. So. There were cameras that were noted that went with the expedition that were never found. They were weirdly missing. Now, you might say during panic, it may have got tossed off in the river or whatever. Okay. The camera that one of the individuals had was on uh, the individual who had worked for the Soviet military in the background. And it was (laughs) a, we'll call it the secret unknown camera. It was not documented. He did not advertise to anyone in the group that he had this that's where a lot of this footage came from so one might suggest well if there was part of a cover-up and maybe it was military (laughs) we took the cameras that we knew that were there yeah but obviously there was one camera that was hidden inside of his chest his vest and coat and he had his arms up as if to protect himself but maybe to hide the camera with some evidence of what really happened maybe um another one of those photos although it was blurry and water damaged, was a skyline shot that Is had that the one that's got like a orb, yeah, an orb, like, a light source, something. And and there's some some question as to 
yeah, like the potential damage to the film. And, yeah, and was the like. it a water spot? Uh, but yeah, it, it shows like a big flash in the sky of what it looks like. Honestly, when you when you stop and you look at the evidence, I'd almost say the government cover up sounds like the most likely. I I have to agree with that. I was shocked, Bill, that you did not bring up another theory, and that was obviously UFO and, UFO and alien yeah. uh, involvement with the lights in the sky. But yeah. again, we have known military flying over and, and doing things. I mean, but. yeah, don't get me wrong. You do have some of the soft tissue damage and whatnot, which is sort of a hallmark of alien, you yes. know, like cattle mutilations and stuff. Right. UFO didn't seem to hold a lot of water to me. No, so. I agree. Uh, just like the Mansi people. At one point in time, they accused the Mansi people of attacking and killing these people for trespassing on their ancestral lands. And from what I understand, the Mansi is like extremely yeah. peaceful. They have they have well, always welcomed people into the area. And there was no evidence that, that humans had been involved in this at all. Yeah. And so. by the way, the mountains were not considered a, a religious... Um, you know, any type of a protected area by the tribe. Well, like, it wasn't like, like a burial ground or anything along again, those the lines. Dead Mountain is to indicate that there's not even good hunting in the area. They, they, yeah, yeah they didn't really, it, yeah. it wasn't important to them. If you crazy people want to, want to trek up through here, yeah. have at it. Cause we're, we're not doing anything with yeah, it. You, you, you crazy know? civilized people <laughs> think you, you know, but well, you might watch out for the Yeti yeah. cause we do believe in that. <laughs> You know, you civilized people want to do for fun what we do to survive every day. I did think it was strange that in the tents that they'd cut their ways out of, like I said, um, most of their belongings were still there and and working belongings, flashlights and stuff. But uh, money and alcohol was found. Now, to the Mansi tribe, either one of those you would have thought if the Mansi had been involved, they would have taken. I found where alcohol was actually worth more than money to the Mansi tribe, and they did use that for trades. So, again, I don't think these people had yeah, anything to do with the it. The Mansi weren't involved. And they think. helped to try to find the search and rescue. I mean, why? Why? <laughs> why? Well, what is it? You know, they say serial killers and whatnot usually get involved. In I guess the they search. want to be involved. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I'm not buying that the Mansi were involved in any way. Uh, honestly, I think the most likely explanation, I think those uh, parachute mines. Mm-hmm. Seemed to fit the bill. Which definitely could explain, like I, I had mentioned, the treetops where the little camp was found and the first two bodies uh, were singed and burnt. That was noted. Um, you know, again, drop a, a bomb yeah. or landmine from a parachute. That Can you imagine being underneath that and a, a landmine going on above your head? Well, again, they, they say that might explain the, the damage because it would be impacts a shockwave from the explosion. Like the car accident impacts, yeah. So, again, if, if I was going to pick one, I think the, the aerial mine thing. Is probably the closest. So. You can definitely say, I mean, for a 60-year-old mystery, it's uh, still unexplained to some degree and a lot of unanswered questions. And and maybe no one theory totally explains everything, but I'm I'm like you. I'm, I'm definitely so, leaning towards military. So what we're saying is the Mansi people hired the Yeti to work with the government. Uh, Who got spooked by a bomb landmine that was dropped by a parachute. From a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> But not to make light of it, it, it's a tragedy. These these people, they did this for fun. This was something they wanted to do. So yep. they, they wanted to prove that they were, you know, experienced at this particular hobby. They were already experienced, but they wanted to be the best. They wanted to, to earn that. In the end, they they all lost their lives, and, and no one knows why. Little did they know by setting up camp that night, it would be their last night alive. Very tragic, very tragic. Well, we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We definitely appreciate uh, your participation participation, and sharing. Thanks again. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Ravensloft. That's our family 
shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.